If back in the first century you travelled a few miles south down the Turkish coast from Ephesus, a city you'll have heard of, you arrived at a smaller place called Priene. It's not mentioned in the New Testament, but Paul almost certainly passed through it on two of his journeys at least. The ruins are the most spectacular of any Greek city surviving, or that's what Wikipedia says, so it must be true. One artefact in those ruins is known as the Priene calendar inscription. Um, it looks a bit like this. The moving from computer to computer has clipped the ends off, so if you can't read it, that's, that's why. Um, uh, it reads in part, this, this is me, uh, the most divine one who we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards dissolution, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aspect. He is the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt his birthday as the new beginning of the year. The providence which has ruled our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us him whom it filled with virtue for the welfare of men, and who, being sent to us and our descendants as a saviour, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. Having become manifest, he has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of this divine one has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. A gospel story about one who, equal to God, came and appeared on earth, restored the world from its brokenness, sent to us and our descendants as a saviour, who has fulfilled the hopes of all the years in his coming. This might sound all very familiar. The angels use some of the same language in our reading, and others, you'll hear echoes from other parts of the New Testament. Only this inscription at Priene wasn't written about Jesus. It was written before he was born, indeed, five or ten years before, about Caesar Augustus, who appeared just a few verses before where we started reading in Luke, uh, chapter 1 of verse 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken, and so on. Now, Luke travelled with Paul, They may have stood and read this inscription at Priene together. They certainly would have seen and heard language like it because it was all over the eastern Mediterranean. When he wrote his account of the birth of Jesus, Luke knew he was using words that Caesar thought belonged to him. And seemingly he did it very deliberately. Whose gospel? Which saviour? is the question he's trying to ask. But if the words are the same, the contexts are very different. One of the reasons the ruins of Priene are so spectacular is that the city was built of marble. The district of Ionia was famously rich, and Priene, though a small city, was home to the richest of the rich. Alexander the Great had built its temple. Fully a third of its home had indoor plumbing, something Edinburgh only managed last century. 
suspect the same is true of St Andrews, but nobody has, written, has yet written a statistical history of the plumbing of St Andrews. <laughs> Small, historic, beautiful, wealthy and elite, it was the sort of place, they were the sort of people that you'd expect an emperor to be interested in. Now, Bethlehem was also a small and fairly wealthy town. Its wealth came from supplying water to Jerusalem. But Luke has been careful to tell us that Mary and Joseph had come down from Nazareth because of Caesar Augustus and his census. Nazareth, Nazareth. Nazareth was the the worst council sink estate you've ever heard of. Jerusalem's civilised, around Jerusalem, Bethlehem's in it, there's a central belt, they called it Judah, and that was okay, but up north, beyond the Samaritans, well, they talked funny, and they lived funny. Scroungers, thieves, you wouldn't trust the best of them, and the worst of it all was a detestable little hole called Nazareth, a tiny village. There aren't many references to it from around the time, but every single reference we have is negative. No one had a good word to say about the place. It's got a post office with bars on the windows where people go to cash their benefits and buy Buckfast tonic wine. Graffiti sprayed on every wall, gangs of kids chucking stones through every window that's not yet boarded up. The police won't go except in pairs and then in a fast car with armed backup waiting. There's a secondary school, but no one there gets hires or even national fours. They come into S1 on drugs and by the time they hit 13, the girls are all pregnant and the boys are all locked up. More asbos than jobs. Nazareth. When Philip the Apostle says to his brother, can anything good come from there in John 1? He's being really quite polite by the standards of the time. Then we get from Nazareth to Bethlehem and suddenly Luke's telling us about shepherds and it's not much better. You need to know about shepherds. They, they just weren't the right sort of people, not high class. A bit of a reputation for stupidity. When later on Jesus starts a story was with, there was this shepherd, it was like launching a Mr Bean episode. Everyone knew what was coming next. He had a hundred sheep, and when one went missing, he left the other 99 on the mountain in the wilderness and went off to look for it. And by this time, they're rolling around laughing, because that's just the sort of thing a shepherd would do, leave the others defenceless and free to run off, while he wandered around on some fool errand for just the one. And then Jesus says, and the kingdom of God is like that, and suddenly the joke's maybe not so funny. But anyway, shepherds, stupid and smelly, just like the sheep they cared for keeping themselves to themselves up on the hillside because no one else wanted to know them, huddled around a fire trying to keep warm. And then, and then the angel appears. And yet, you know the story, but, but imagine what it was like for those shepherds. Don't be afraid, he said. Don't be afraid. He's nine foot tall. And he's shining so bright I can't look at him and he's hovering 30 feet in the air. What's to be afraid of? And we were all on our knees, even Reuben, who's like the bravest shepherd there is, everyone knows that. And we're hiding our faces and I'm looking for somewhere to run to, but there isn't anywhere. And so I'm like saying, no sir, of course we're not afraid, sir, because I'm so terrified that I'll do anything, he says. And I'm not stupid, not like they say shepherds are. But in the middle of all that, I didn't really catch what he was on about. 
something about a baby. And we were meant to find, and I'm about to head off, because frankly, finding a baby sounds a whole lot better than being there. But then suddenly, millions of his mates appear. A sky's full of them, and they're all singing and stuff. And I'm trying to dig a little hole to crawl into, just to get up. But then finally, they went. Well, Jesse's all excited and says something about God speaking to us. And I told him right off that if God was going to speak to anyone, it would be the priests or them Pharisees or, well, someone who wasn't a shepherd anyway. Some Levite told me once I was unclean, always would be unclean and couldn't do anything about it. That's the deal for shepherds, he said. Suits me, to be honest. God's not interested in me. I'm not much interested in him. We get on just fine like that. But Jesse wouldn't shut up. And he says, we've got to go down to Bethlehem and find this baby. And Reuben joins in and coughs him on and says, we can't go leaving the sheep. But suddenly I'm with Jess. Nice warm pub. Lots of people around. Just what I needed. Well, we head down, but but, but Jesse isn't after a pub. He says, we've got to find a baby who was in a manger. Well, I know a bit about mangers. Old bits of wood you feed sheep out of. Not places to put babies. I mean, we was poor. But when my three were born, I did a bit better than that. But Jess seemed to think that this manger was important or, or the baby in it or something. And I didn't really want our friend turning up to me, asking me why I hadn't done what he said. So I headed off with him. Anywhere, anywhere seemed better than the hillside. We hit town and everything seemed very normal. Shepherds. <laughs> Lots of people around because of the census, but, but just bustle and all that. And I, I started to wonder... I stopped someone and said, said, excuse me, sir, um, you didn't happen to see a, a heavenly host singing up there in the sky about half an hour ago? Well, you can imagine what he said. <laughs> and I said to Jess, look, mate, it was cold. We'd had a bit to drink to keep warm. You don't think... But Jesse didn't. He hurried down some dingy back street, and I followed him because I didn't know what else to do, and there we found... The, the, the room at the bottom of the house, the stable where the animals were, and there was the baby. Oh, poor little mite, I thought. I mean, there wasn't the wind we have on the hills, but it was pretty cold, cold down there too. And I looked at his mum, just a girl really. She looked in a pretty bad way, but the baby was lying in a manger all right, wrapped up in whatever they found to keep him warm. And I was quite glad it was a stable. I feel at home in stables. Look, okay, it's, it's true. As, as shepherds do smell a little. It's not us so that you'd smell if you work with sheep all your life. But at least a stable's the one place that smells worth of we do, what, with the animals and all that. You know, the animals were still there. They hadn't quite worked out that it wasn't still their food in that manger, so they kept wandering over to have a look, and really, it was all a bit of a mess. Jesse says, all quiet-like, look at the baby. Well, I mean, a baby's a baby, in it? They all look the same, really. Someone once told me they all look like some bloke called Churchill, but he's not from round here, so I don't know. <laughs> well, I wandered over to have a quick peer. I was planning to say something nice to the mum and then go and find that pub. But the baby, the baby, well, oh, I can't tell you. I, I can't. It was just an ordinary baby, but, but just like any of my three were. But there was something, something about him. And suddenly, Jess was on his knees, praying, praying like he was a priest or something. And I looked back at the baby, I couldn't help myself, I was down there too. Praying too, me, I mean. And then these things the angel said kept coming back into my mind, Saviour and Messiah and Lord. And I saw this baby and somehow I knew it was all true. God was 
interest in us, shepherds, all of us. He'd come to tell us that. Good news for all the people, like us. Oh, I don't know. I was never any good with words, but, but I knew something then about God. And I've never forgotten it. And when Jess and I left, we kept talking about it. Kept talking to God, because it seemed like we could now. And we've never stopped. What was it like for the shepherds? What was it like for Mary? Imagine what it was like for Mary. She's 14, 15, even younger, pregnant before she's married. And, and sure, an angel's explained it to Joseph. That's okay. But do you think her parents were impressed? And then in the dark and the cold and the filth of a stable, the pain and the screams and the labour and the exhaustion and the blood and the child. And we've got loads of Christmas cards up at home that show it all clean and glowing and Mary, 30 and blonde with a serene smile on her face. But it wasn't like that. Imagine what it was like. And so we could go on. Joseph, in a few minutes, a few days, will be fleeing as a refugee to a strange company. This is an image from Dover, the town I grew up in. Joseph runs to a refugee where he doesn't speak the language and people are just as welcoming as we are down south. Magi, wise men, pagan astrologers led to the Christ by their divinations, high-ranking government officials from Iraq. It's an odd cast in this nativity play, the dregs of society. A homeless teenage mother, refugees, pagans. It's an odd cast that the scriptures assemble. The Bible's almost going out of its way to give us everyone who shouldn't be there, excluding anybody who's respectable or religious or holy. I mean, the only person in this entire story who might have been a church member in good standing is Mary, and well, we kicked her out when she found she was pregnant. Offensive? Maybe. But Luke at least tells us why. As do the other Gospels in Matthew. Name him Emmanuel. Which means God is with us. In Luke, good news, great joy for all people. In John, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And when it says, with us, among us, just in case we start saying us doesn't mean all people, just the nice people, or the respectable people, or the people like us, or the religious people, Luke gives us this list of outcasts. And the clear teaching of scripture is that these are the people who God first comes to be among. So we cannot exclude anybody, not anybody. God welcomes those whose governments and societies try to dehumanise. God welcomes the refugees and the homeless and the foreigners and the single mothers. And in the joy of God's coming at Christmas, there's a challenge in that. A challenge that when God comes out of love and concern for all, Our concerns aren't drawn any narrower. That we don't fall into the trap that too often our society invites us to. Of demonising, excluding some people. No, good news of great joy for all the people. 
said the angel. Every time a newspaper columnist has a cheap shot, the cries of the baby in the manger are God's rebuke. Every time a government minister changes the rules, thinking you can get away with hurting some people, the cries of the baby in the manger are God's protest. Every time we try to protect ourselves in relative privilege and comfort, try to insulate ourselves from injustice or suffering, we have to be beware, lest the baby cries out against us too. We began with another gospel of another saviour who claimed to have brought peace to the world. Caesar Augustus, his legions crushed or resistance. It's true, Tacitus, a historian, puts in the mouth of a Scottish war leader fighting those legions the line, they make it a desert and they call it peace. In the stately marble homes of Priene, it may have felt like peace. In neglected Nazareth, in occupied Bethlehem, much less so. The world's full of pretend saviours. People who claim to be able to give us peace. And sometimes it even works after a fashion. If you build the walls high enough and draw the lines hard enough, you can say, we're okay. We're okay. We can shut the door at Christmas, inviting only the people we want round the table feast and feel comfortable but that's Caesar's peace not the peace of the baby in the manger if we have to shut the doors and pretend other things aren't happening other people aren't suffering it is not good news great joy for all the people Caesar's peace is false peace. Caesar's salvation is false salvation. Christ brings real peace, real salvation. Peace, salvation because God is with us. Peace because he has come as a saviour to free us from the guilt of our sins. Peace because he has come to meet death and to conquer death. Peace because unlike Caesar, Christ comes bringing good news for all the people, even me, even you. Peace. Peace because when this baby cries, what we hear is true peace.